I'm not doing all that again. That was just too much fun. But just for uh, those online who may not have seen, welcome. You probably saw me. You didn't hear me. Um, my button was partly unplugged, so I'm sorry about that. I am Ken Brand, and I'm the vice rector, and I'm filling in for Chris Garada, who is the rector. This is the rector's Bible study, and you are doing 2 Samuel. Um, last week, you did chapters 11 and 12. You didn't actually quite finish 12, and it's super important what happens at the end of 12. So I am gonna collect a super important hinge point that happens at the end of 12, and then we're gonna go into 13 and 14. As I was saying before, before you could hear me online, I know that there was, it was an interesting class last time. Um, there was a lot of energy. Um, the story itself is full of drama. Somebody said, uh, as we were starting this, oh, be just like Chris. And I said, I don't have to be dramatic. The story is dramatic. And so we're gonna let the story do the work. It is funny though that, um, you know, Chris made a big deal about David and Bathsheba, and that was a heinous sin. Um, we're not glossing over that at all. That was extremely wrong, but you know, he thinks that's tough. He goes away, and what does he give me? The rape of Tamar. <laughs> so I'm just saying, Chris, I think I know why you selected this week to go be with your colleagues, um, and it is a very trying story. Um, and if you allow yourself to really hear the narrative, on the one hand, it's through the eyes of the men, but on the other hand, it's crystal clear the impact on Tamar. And we're gonna, we're gonna look at that today. We're gonna spend time with that. Okay, so there's really like five sections in what I wanna do today. Um, we're not gonna read every verse. There's parts I'm gonna summarize, but we are gonna read certain sections because they're very important. But here's the five parts for today. And I did hand out an outline, which those of you in the room have, um, and it corresponds to these parts. 2 Samuel 12, 15 to 25, which is the death of the child of David and Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 12, 26 to 31, the capture of Rabbah. 2 Samuel 13, 1 through 22, Amnon rapes Tamar. 2 Samuel 13, 23 to 39, Absalom kills Amnon. And then 2 Samuel 14, 1 to 33, the restoration of Absalom. So that's kind of the frame of what we're doing. I will take questions at times, um, but I'll try to see if I can at least touch on all those parts so that when Chris comes back, it's queued up um, for chapters 15 and beyond. So as you talked last week about David and Bathsheba, um, in a sense, it was a grievous wrong in so many ways, not least of which to Uriah, to the kingdom of Israel, and certainly to himself and to his family and to Bathsheba. And so what we have immediately following Nathan, the prophet coming and saying, tells a story, and David's like, you know, that person should die. And Nathan says, I love that verse, you are the man, right? And right there, I mean, dramatically, it could not be any more powerful. David is struck to the heart, and he knows that he's been the, the basis of that story from Nathan. Now the Bible does a thing which sometimes is uncomfortable and difficult. It sometimes wants to frame terrible things happening as judgment. And we can hold that as one thing that the narrators may be trying to do. David does a horrible thing and now there's judgment on his house in these ways. I would like to say terrible things happen and David is not spared consequences or suffering. For me, that is more helpful because if we go around saying, you know, you do this good thing, God is gonna reward you. You do this bad thing, God is gonna judge you. 
We find in life that's not always what happens, at least not on this side of the grave. Sometimes those who do evil prosper, those who are pure suffer. <clears throat> and so I want to be a little careful of that kind of too easy, you know, he did a bad thing and now he's going to pay, but what does follow is tragedy. And let me just read a little bit of what happens here with David and Bathsheba. Immediately after Nathan, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became very ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his house stood around him, urging him to rise from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. And this is very interesting because this is where I would suggest that David's spirituality might be a little immature. And here's why. When the child is sick, he does all of these things uh, to try to get God's favor, to try to make this thing not come to pass. It's actually super normal. Uh, many of us would do the same thing when confronted with a gravely ill child. But then as soon as the child dies, they actually, they're scared to tell him, but then he asks, did the child die? They say yes, and he kind of dusts himself off, fixes his hair, goes and eats, and carries on. And they say, what happened? What was that big change? And he basically says, there's nothing I can do about it now. The child is gone. Therefore, you know, I can't join my, uh, the child can't join me. I have to wait until I die to join him. And there's almost a matter of factness. There's a practicality, um, but also a little bit of manipulation. Can I manipulate God to do what I want God to do? And if I can't, well then, let me just carry on. So I leave, David is a very complex character. He's central to the Jewish story. He's central to our story, but the narrators have no interest in making him perfect. He is a complex man and he tries to get God to do a thing. God doesn't do it. And then he carries on with his life. I want you to pull out in front of you from your pew, the Book of Common Prayer that's in red. If you'll just grab that, those of you who are in the room, this is a Bible study. But it's interesting when there's times where a Bible story so points to something we have available to us in the church to help us in times like David was in. So turn to page 446 of the prayer book. What we have here is the sacrament called the reconciliation of a penitent. Now, for, we have many different traditions represented in this church, some Catholic, some Protestant, some none of the above. But we do, in the Episcopal Church, have a way to confess our sins publicly to a priest or a Christian friend. This is very significant. I think we all know about how we can confess to God something that we have done privately. But this sacrament is intended for those whose conscience is troubled. And what that means is you really can't rest day after day or week after week or month after month, something continues to pop up as unresolved, that is often a sign 
that the reconciliation of a penitent may be an appropriate service for you. And you could come to any priest at St. Michael. You can also go to a spiritual friend. Um, they can't pronounce absolution, but they can hear your confession and remind you both of forgiveness. And so in this reconciliation of a penitent, there's two forms. One is on 447, and it is similar to the Catholic version that some of you may have grown up with. Uh, yeah, I'm just trying to get the wording. Yeah, it's very traditional. But then there's form two, and I want you to listen to the beginning of this form. Uh, it's from the Orthodox Church. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. In your great compassion, blot out all my offenses. Wash me through and through from my wickedness and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions only too well, and my sin is ever before me. And then the priest says, may God in his love enlighten your heart that you may remember in truth all your sins and his unfailing mercy. So right there, the minister hearing the confession reminds both of them that they're in a field of love first and foremost, and then it goes on to hear a bit of scripture, um, and then the person can kind of raise whatever comes to mind, and then listen to this, what the priest says. May Almighty God in mercy receive your confession of sorrow and of faith, strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. So this form is available, should you need it, should you need it. Um, and I mention it because I think sometimes we forget. Uh, it feels a little old-fashioned, or you know, maybe confession was improperly used when you were a child, and it was kind of mandated every week. That's not how we approach it. We just know that there are times in life where our conscience is troubled, and somebody hearing it in a field of love can make all the difference. And so I do suggest that this story of David and Bathsheba and all that transpired there is a reminder that God loves Israel so much and is so intended on fulfilling his purposes in Israel that even the most heinous sins that his servants commit will not stop God from being revealed in that arc of grace across time. Um, and so, like Chris said, you don't whitewash what David did. You know, you don't explain it away. But you do understand that God is, first and foremost, merciful. And that regardless of what we've done or will do, God is bringing something into being. And we can all be part of that. We're not somehow disqualified because we have done something grievously wrong. And so that's my encouragement to you. That's the, that's the priest in me that wants you to hear that. So we've... Talk now about, um, we've talked now about the death of the child of Bathsheba and David, and that's really sad. And whether you see it as judgment or whether you see it as tragedy upon tragedy, David, as Chris said, it's all beginning to go downhill quite painfully for David. So let's move on now. Um, then it says, after their child dies, that David consoles Bathsheba in her grief. They sleep together. She bears a son, and what's his name? Solomon. And so this is the part where I didn't want you to get out of chapter 12 without hearing. Solomon has been born. Sound familiar? This becomes the heir to the throne, but it shouldn't be, because he's the seventh-born son, just like David was the eighth-born son. It's always the oldest. It's always the firstborn who is heir to the throne. But here Solomon has been born. We don't yet know that he's going to be king. But what phrase do they use in the Bible of Solomon? The Lord loved him. It's exactly the same language that it's used of David. 
when it said the Lord saw David of his own heart and loved him, we hear that the Lord loved Solomon, and that's a cue, it's a foreshadowing of Solomon's role in the kingdom. Next uh, section, we don't need to spend a lot of time on it, but it is important, 2 Samuel 12, 26 to 31. Um, this is the fall of the city that they've been trying to besiege. And I want you to notice how David and his soldiers handle that city. It says that Joab, who's his faithful general, just imagine Joab is always trying to carry out David's will. And Joab is, ha is having success against the city. It's about to fall. And he actually says something funny. He says, get over here and be part of this, because if you don't, I'm going to name the city after myself. And so David brings his people. Um, they besiege the city. It falls. But then what's interesting is that David and his people treat the city the way that the rulers before treated their cities. In other words, David and his people are called for a purpose. And what do they do? They plunder, they take everything, and they bring the inhabitants into slavery, and not just slavery, but laying bricks. Israel came out of Egypt from Pharaoh, where they were slaves. God freed them, and now here they are in a position of power, ascending as a kingdom, and they're beginning to treat the subjugated as they have been treated. Again, it's a complexity. And I think in the wisdom of the narrative, God is calling us to notice that some of these things that Israel was saved out of, they're beginning to do to others. And that lets you know that it's human and that God needs to redeem even Israel. Let me pause there, because that concludes uh, chapter 12. We've heard about the death of their child, um, the birth of Solomon, and the fall of the city. What questions do you have so far? Chris probably told you, I always wait seven seconds because they say that's how long it actually takes to form a question. Anything? Okay, let's carry on. So now, um, we're going into 2 Samuel 13, 1 through 22. And first, you need to understand the family tree here. I have read this before. As I was preparing for the Bible study, I'm like, what? Who is a half-brother, and who's their mother? And <laughs> so I looked it up. Um, to remind you, David has eight wives. Amnon is his firstborn son of Ahinoam. Okay, so Amnon is his firstborn. Makah is a wife, and Absalom is born to her. That's so he, Absalom is the third-born son. Tamar is Absalom's sister. So you have a firstborn son, Amnon, then you have Absalom, Tamar is his sister, and then lots of others, and then Bathsheba and Solomon, right? So there's a little bit of the family tree just to understand. So the focus of this story is Amnon, first, firstborn, beloved of David, and his actions. So this I do need to read because it is difficult but important. Okay. Some time passed, David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. As David's son Amnon fell in love with her, Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, 
for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, a very fair-weather friend we'll find out later, the son of David's brother Shimea. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me something to eat and prepare the food in my sight so that I might see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king, king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight so that I may eat from her hand. So now the plot has been set. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. She took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. Then she took the pan and set them out before him, but he refused to eat. Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber so that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not force me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do anything so vile. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the scoundrels in Israel. Now, therefore, I beg you, speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you, but he would not listen to her, and being stronger than her, he forced her to lay with her. This story is so significant, not only just at the storytelling level, but what the writers are trying to show you is the purity of Tamar. She's coming to help. She's coming in kindness and at the direction of her father. When she gets there, she resists his entreaties, and she even gives him a path to do what he wants to do by the law. Now, I know that's hard for our hearing, right? But in that time, because she was a half-sister, it was not inconceivable that she could become a wife. And so she knew what was unfolding, and it was almost as though the prophets were speaking to him to try to get his attention, there is a way for you to honor her and to honor yourself, but he refused to do so. And so in a sense, that purity of intention, coupled with that vileness of behavior, it's pronounced. The writers really want you to know this wasn't just an accident. Um, it, it really was deliberate, it was intentional, and Tamar was the true innocent victim. And it makes me think a bit of Christ who comes in truth to do a good thing and is nailed to a tree. There is that kind of pure victim here in this story. Then Amnon was seized with a very great loathing for her. Indeed, his loathing was even greater than the lust he held for her. Amnon said to her, get out. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you have done to me. But he would not listen to her. Now you all, I know you've been doing this study, you know how this works. For a woman who is a virgin to, be, to have any sexual intercourse before marriage, but certainly to be raped, means that she has, her life has been taken away, 
not just her bodily integrity, but her integrity in the society. She will not be able to marry, very likely. She will not be able to have a living. She will be completely dependent on the mercy of those around her, including her family. So that is kind of the situation she is now in. And so she's begging at the very least, do right by me and take me as your wife. And he says, he called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Um, I, there was a commentator who said, in a sense, he consummated the marriage and divorced her in the matter of minutes. All of that happened in that exchange. She was, in a sense, betrothed by the sexual act and then divorced immediately, and it's, it's uh, heinous. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for this is how the virgin daughters of the king were clothed in earlier times. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, but Tamar put ashes on her head, What's that? A sign of grieving and mourning. And tore the long robe that she was wearing. She was no longer able to wear a virgin's robe. She put her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Thoughts, feelings, responses. I mean, this is the Bible we read, friends. We sometimes say, you know, read the Bible. And there's things like this. So what do you do with this? When you see a passage like this, um, in what way does it strengthen your faith? In what way does it lead you closer to God? For anyone who feels willing just to, to answer that question, and I'll repeat it for those listening online. How is a story like this helpful to us? Let me just restate briefly what she's just said. A story like this reminds us of times in our own lives where we will be in a situation where we do not know the outcome, we do not know how good will come of this. And so at a minimum in hearing a story like this in the Bible, it reminds us that this collection of writings and the way that God was revealed in these writings is possible for us as well that we may have situations that seem insurmountable. We don't know how God will be revealed, but there's a sense of um, faith that even in the darkest situations, God will somehow be known or, or revealed. So thank you for that. Someone else, I thought I saw a hand getting ready to come up. What, how is this helpful? Or is it? Here's a fair question. Is it useful? Because I've got friends who've said, don't even read the Old Testament, just do the epistles and the gospels. I don't think I agree with that. And so I want to know if this is helpful and why. Yeah. Amnon. 
Okay, so one question is, boy, there's a parallel here. David fell, Amnon fell, seems to run in the family. Um, the only thing I would phrase differently is, um, they were tempted by their own hearts. They were tempted by their own flesh. They were, I mean, it was not the woman in either case who did anything. And I think we just have to state that, and I know you know that, they just, in one case, bathing privately at home, and in the other case, preparing food for her sick brother. It is their own heart, it is their own lust, desires of the flesh that have pulled them. But I think you're absolutely right to show now we may be seeing ways in which um, the sins of the father are being represented in the sins of the sons. And they say that can go from generation to generation. So I am struck by that parallel that seems to be happening. And we almost wish we could stop it. Like, can't you see? But that seems to be unfolding now, kind of like a Shakespearean drama. What else? Anyone else want to reflect on, is this helpful? Should we skip these passages? What's that? He says, don't we need the rest of the story? Is that the cue? I should keep going. <laughs> yeah, uh, because just taking out, taking out of context, I think, is, is sort of an incomplete uh, moral. Yeah. What it is is, I think what it is is I don't want to go past it too quickly. I want to just take a moment to acknowledge what has happened to Tamar and understand the depth of that sin. And then we are going to go, and it does things do happen and get resolved in certain ways. Yes? I said Say more. A Me Too generation. That she's wrong and taken advantage of. He was over, he overcame her. There's nothing she did wrong. He needs to pay. Ah, right. <laughs> I don't think I need to say much about that. She, you know, he did wrong. He needs to pay. There's consequences. Yeah. And, I, and she, what she's saying is this is still relevant in our society. This is still relevant in the Me Too movement and ways that people in power take advantage of those who are not. And so I think you're absolutely right. Let's do move on. What's, before we go to the whole next section, I want to finish out this one. And I'm at 13, verse 20 through 22. <laughs> Unfortunately, both Absalom and David respond inadequately to what has happened. So they both become aware. First, she comes to Absalom. And somehow, I don't know if Absalom's been noticing his brother, what his behavior. He says, has Amnon, Amnon your brother, been with you? So he kind of knows it. He can tell it's true. What does he say? Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. Now, if this doesn't have relevance for our own day, that often in our families, when there is great dysfunction, one of the first things to preserve the family is, Shh, don't talk about it. Keep it in the family, right? Truthfully, there are reasons why that is wise, because in a sense, putting everything out for the world to see is always not always helpful. But the immediate, I'm struck by the very first response is to be quiet. That is something we know the meaning of. And so I would note that. Um, but Absalom does a good thing. He brings Tamar into his household. Basically, she has a protector. She has a redeemer in Hebrew words. Um, it's not what she hoped. She's not going to have her own husband, but she is at least going to be safe. She's going to be secure, and she's going to be fed in the home of her brother, Absalom. When King David heard all of these things, and so now David hears, he became very angry, yay, but he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him, for he was his firstborn. 
What do you think, Robert? Anything you want to put with that grunt? What's that? Robert, he says, it's not how I raised my kids. I would suggest to you that David's failure to act at this moment precipitates a lot of what follows. Because in a sense, it's crying out for justice. This wrong is crying out for justice. And by David, the patriarch, the king, doing nothing, justice still has to be served. And what happens is it falls to Absalom to try to execute the justice that his father failed to do. Um, whatever that justice would look like, even if it was at least acknowledging it or naming it, um, but David could not or would not do that, and that puts into motion the next several chapters. Justice must be executed in this situation. And then it goes on to say, but Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad. All that means is he doesn't talk to him, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had raped his sister Tamar. And so now you have this seething, simmering, underground hatred, which is going to get expressed in tangible ways. Any other thoughts on this before we move on? We okay? All right. So for two years, Absalom thinks about this and makes a plan. I mean, he plots for two years to figure out how to, in a sense, get justice for Tamar. And it's sheep shearing season, and that's a festival. There's usually lots of celebration. So Absalom goes to his father, David, and says, I'd like to have this festival. Why don't you and my brothers all come and celebrate? There are commentators who think that Absalom absolutely intended to kill David and all the brothers and take the throne. That he's trying to set up a moment where in one fell swoop, he can claim the throne. David resists, no, I'm not gonna come. Absalom presses him. David says, no, it'd be too much trouble for you, gives a firm no. So then Absalom says, at least let Amnon come. And again, I think David is not completely dumb. He kind of knows he's in danger and he probably knows Amnon is in danger. And I wonder, he finally lets Amnon go. Is that kind of an unconscious way of saying, let it be with Amnon as he deserves? I don't know. Or is really David completely clueless about what's about to happen? We don't know, but David does not go, but he lets Amnon go with Absalom. There's a feast and then Absalom commanded his servants, watch when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not myself commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. And so the servants do exactly that. There's a moment where uh, Amnon is drunk. He gives the signal, they murder him. And then all his brothers flee. That's important. They all flee on their mules. So, but the report comes to David, and uh, here um, Jonadab comes back, the one who kind of tells Amnon what to do. He's in the scene again. Um, and a report comes back that all of David's sons have been killed. And so David and his servants are just devastated. They immediately begin mourning. They prostrate on the ground. They're tearing their clothes. I mean, can you imagine being a father and a king and you hear that all of your sons have been killed? But Jonadab, the son of, he, Jonadab is almost a character who keeps things moving, whether right or wrong or whether you like him or not, he kind of keeps this plot going. So Jonadab says, let not my Lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, Amnon alone is dead. This has been determined by Absalom from the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. Now therefore do not let the Lord take it to heart as if all the king's sons were dead. So it almost feels as though first 
Jonadab colludes with Amnon to do this terrible thing to Tamar. Then he's collaborating with Absalom because he seems to know that Absalom has been planning Amnon's murder from the beginning. So he's just one of these characters who's looking for the right opportunity to kind of enable and make things happen. And we kind of know that sometimes when folks are in power, there are people that surround them that are really just kind of either enabling the behavior or trying to get some gain out of it for themselves. And that seems to be the case of this guy. So Absalom flees. Um, then the, all the sons come to David. They all uh, grieve the death of Amnon. Um, and a, it says Am, Absalom fled and went to Talmai, uh, king of Geshur, which is his maternal grandfather. So he goes to a place to escape David's fury and he ends up being there for three years. And it says at the end, and the heart of the king went out yearning for Absalom, for he was now consoled over the death of Amnon. So this is, I mean, for whatever David's faults are, he loves his family and he loves his sons. And even Absalom, who has perpetrated this great wrong, there's a season of mourning and then he misses him. He longs for him, um, wants him to be restored. And that longing for his sons, again, creates difficulty later, but he's not cold hearted. He's not uh, dispassionate. It's almost as if his love for his sons blinds him um, to the right next thing. So let's pause there. Any questions, any thoughts, any reflections? Um, things have moved along quite a bit now. We have Absalom in exile. Um, we've got David now grieving the loss of two sons in a sense. What, what questions do you have, Robert? I, it's a statement. I, it seems to me like David is a monster. Mm -hmm. So Robert says, I am not comfortable. David acts like a monster. It's not good enough to say he loved his sons. And I wasn't saying that is the end. I think it is a fact. I think we are complex people. And I think we can do great wrong and also have great love. So that's what I'm pointing out is I, I think he acts monstrously. And I think he's beloved of God and loves his sons. I think psychologically, we often want to split those. You're one or the other. You're either beloved of God or you're evil. And what's happening is we're holding those intention that we have David who's acting badly and yet still love is there. And so I think that is actually hopeful for us because we want to split ourselves off when we do a thing. We want to come down and say there's no hope for us. And I think what it's saying is, wow, even in that kind of behavior, love can be in the midst of it. So it's more complex. But anyone else want to respond to that? You know, talk a little bit about David. How are you feeling about David these days? Because in a sense, he's held up in all of our Psalms, right? He's held up as this paragon of virtue, or at least who God wants the king to be. And we're starting to see who he really is. Any other thoughts or feelings about David? How can David judge his son when he did the same thing? And probably David, that's exactly it. How can I judge my son when I've done the same? Like internally, he may have had exactly that thought. How can I judge? Because I've done that very thing. Bob, you had a question. It makes me think someone online has a question.
Wow. Okay. So for those who are watching online, um, listening to these stories, David really needs parenting 101. He is struggling with being an effective parent um, and setting limits and in a sense helping his children know how to repent and be restored. So he's missing that fundamental parenting skill. Others? Thoughts? Yeah. You hear that? Okay, so on the one hand, not to let David off the hook, but on the other hand, we are all flawed, and in this story, we see ourselves in the possibility of redemption, right? It's okay, you can hold both of those together. What else? Are, is anyone surprised at what you're learning about David? I mean, is this a bit of a shock? No, it's not a shock. It's not a shock for you, okay. So she says, even though he has erred, seriously, he has redeeming qualities. Can you remind us of some of David's redeeming qualities? Because at a point like this in the story, it's like, why, did, why do we love him? Well, what? He loves his children. He loves his God. He is sometimes a good leader. <laughs> what else? What, what do we, what, just a reminder, what do we love about David? He asks for forgiveness. He actually um, take, takes responsibility at times. And he was good to those that he conquered initially. Started off by being good to those he conquered. And I, that's why I, I brought that story into the fall of that city. It's almost like that wartime behavior is reflecting something deeper that happens in David. Frankly, I think in the church, we do get kind of obsessed with sex. And I think if we set sex aside, you can start to see ways, other ways in David's life where he is showing signs of kind of moving away from God or not living into God's intentions. And so yes, our sexual relationships can show that, but so can how we handle winning in a battle or a lot of other things. And so I would say, begin to look at the strands that say, David is struggling. Something is, something is not right with David. Yeah, above in the back. Thank you. And do you feel this um, basic struggle we're having? Because it goes back and forth. We could do this all day, right? There is a sense in which David is a broken vessel and God uses a broken vessel to God's purposes, which is incredibly encouraging. And as Chris said last week, 
That doesn't mean everything ends happily ever after for you. It does not mean you're restored to your position as pastor. It does not even mean that you survive as king. Like there are things that you can unleash that will come back to you in a negative way, but can you repent? Can you be restored before God? Can you even experience some happiness? Yes, but it doesn't mean it's gonna be all okay. And I think what we are sensitive to, Chris and I, is when people in positions of power use this story to turn a blind eye against what they have done. And I think we can, we can do both here. Um, do not hear me say there's no reconciliation, there's no redemption, and it doesn't necessarily mean someone should be restored to a position of trust if they've betrayed that trust. And it's a, it's a tension we have here. So great, thank you for those comments, it's really helpful. Let's carry on. Um, just to get to the end of what the, the Bible reading is for today. This next part is 14, 1 to 33. So we had a comment on a question online that is going to come to bear here. Basically, Joab, that faithful general, takes a wise woman and gets her to play a part, to play a ruse, to go to King David and tell a story about there was a man with two sons and one killed the other one. Um, and everybody now wants to kill that last son. She's telling it as if it's her own story, but like Nathaniel, she's saying, this is you, and Joab is saying, this is you, and Joab is trying to get an outcome where Absalom will be invited to come back from his exile and be restored to the king's house. Why would Joab be interested in doing that? And I'm not saying there's one answer. Why might Joab be interested in Absalom being brought back from exile and restored to the king's house. Yes. Okay, so one person says because he might benefit, he might get some, because David's gonna die eventually and there's gonna be the next one up, Amnon's dead, it's probably gonna be Absalom. And so maybe now I can start setting things in motion so I can be in favor with that new king. So a little self-interest, great. What else? There's a, at least a couple other reasons why. Why does this faithful general want to bring back Absalom? Because it would assure um, security of the, uh, the next king. It would be sort of even things uh, out. That's interesting. Um, basically, Absalom is beloved in Israel. And so in bringing him back, it may kind of heal this rift and create some stability for the kingdom because it does no good to have a son in exile. So just to bring stability, maybe he's enough of a general that he's looking out for the needs of the state. Anyone else have a, a couple ideas? Two I thought of is <laughs> Joab wants to kill him. Joab wants to execute justice on Absalom and he can't do it if he's exiled. And so in some way, it makes you wonder if Joab is looking for a way to be able to kill him. I know that's kind of shocking, but that's one. The other thing is Joab knows his master so well, and he loves King David so well, he sees David grieving and pining and longing for his son. And a good number two man looks out for the number one and wants to put into motion things that will heal the king's heart. So see what I'm saying? It's interesting. We don't really know the motivation, but um, Joab does send this woman, tells this story, 
you know, once David, you should, he, you would think he would see it coming, but he falls for it again. He gets all outraged on behalf of the woman. Of course, that son of yours should be spared. Let me know how, I, what I can do. And then basically she reveals that she was sent by Joab and that it reflects his own situation. And then he goes to Joab and says, why did you send this woman to trick me? And Joab admitted, because I want you to be restored to your son. So, um, that he does. Uh, David brings Absalom back, however, only in a partial way. Absalom is allowed to return, but not to be in the presence of the king. So he goes to his own house. He has a wife. He ends up having three kids. Interestingly, Absalom names his daughter Tamar in kind of respect and honor of the one who was uh, betrayed and, and dealt with poorly. He names his own child um, after her. So he's now living in his house, but he's not allowed to get near the king. So in a sense, David's ambivalent. He wants his son back, but he feels like there's still some, some distance that he can't bridge. And this makes Absalom crazy. Absalom basically is like, you might as well let, left me in my exiled kingdom because to come back and not be able to see my father is unbearable. And Absalom tries to get Joab's attention so that he can come to the king. Twice, Joab ignores Absalom's appeal. So what does Absalom do to get Joab's attention? Who's read it? He catches Joab's fields on fire. He what? He catches Joab's fields on fire. So Absalom lives here. There's fields of barley next to him that belong to Joab. And because he's not getting his way, I mean, every now and then it sounds like a bunch of selfish little kids. He's not getting his way, so he tells his servants to catch the fields on fire that belonged to Joab. Well, guess what? It worked. Guess who came to Absalom? Joab. And he's not happy about it. So now you have the beginnings of maybe Joab really is looking forward to take this guy out. He's just burned all his fields. Um, but Absalom appeals to Joab to... Um, be able to see his father and yeah I'm just looking and he is allowed to come back and David embraces him and kisses him raises him up from a, a subjugated position and kisses him but watch next week to see how Absalom repays David for that kindness there's a little more about Absalom I want to share because that was kind of the end of chapter 14 um, but they, the writers want you to know Absalom even though he's been exiled, even though he's killed his brother, he's beautiful. He's got fantastic hair. I love that. His hair is so great. In fact, annually he would cut it, and guess how much hair it would create? Five pounds of hair. I mean, so you have this sense of just this fantastic hair, beautiful. Um, he has a family, and Israel is actually hoping that he's going to become their next king. They're, they're just enamored of him. I think in some ways they see young David in Absalom, and so they're beginning, actually in a dangerous way, they're beginning to coalesce around Absalom. And David is becoming more and more isolated. Um, so there's some intrigue, there's some palace intrigue here. Um, yeah. And so he comes back, he's restored, but then you're going to see how things continue to get bad for David. What other question? Yes, hi. Is Solomon at this time just a very young He is. He's basically a little kid with Bathsheba being raised. She asked what, uh, what's happening with Solomon right now. So he's being raised up. What else? Yes. 
I can't tell what happens next. Yes, in fact, <laughs> David is so clear, even when Absalom, I'll give you just a foretaste, even when Absalom is trying to overthrow David from the throne, David says, do not touch him, do not harm him. Again, this love for his sons almost knows no bounds. It's this extravagant love which puts him in great danger and you will find out what happens to Absalom and it may or may not happen at the hands of Joab. So even, and that's a conflict for Joab. He loves David, he's his trusted general. And yet again, because David consistently fa fails to act as a leader or to take actions that should be taken, other people end up having to do it for him. Absalom did it for Amnon. Joab looks like he may have to do it. So it, there is a fundamental, and this is a confusing one for me because we talk about Jesus who is a suffering servant and who went even unto death. So in a sense, David is emulating Jesus in some of this not doing an eye for an eye. And at the same time, the society, the law calls out for certain things to happen as a result, and he's not doing it. And so it's almost like the people around him are acting out what he cannot. And I think that's the tension, actually. If you wanna get into a really interesting discussion, if you look at what Jesus taught, and if you, you know, turn the other cheek, all of these things about not giving an eye for an eye, or um, trusting God enough that even if your body is broken by your enemies, you will be redeemed, all this teaching, it does sometimes create problems in the world as we know it because the world is still operating, in a sense, by the laws of the devil. I mean, that's kind of dramatic, but it's kind of got its own sinful way of functioning. And if you step outside of that, or if you resist that, it can create danger and harm and scary things. So never follow Jesus thinking, well, if I do all those things he said, I will be just okay. Um, nothing bad will happen to me. In fact, the same things that happened to him can happen to us because in a sense, we're standing against the world and its ways, and that can be a dangerous place. What else? Any other questions or comments or reflections? <clears throat> I did get one other comment that I'll just answer before we end today. I don't have it right in front of me, but I think I remember what it is. Someone was talking about the point of the story is lust and shame. I don't think the point of the story is lust and shame. It's certainly in the story. But this person asked, can shame be good? We talk about shame as though it's bad. Does it ever have a positive function? So to the person who asked that question, here's what I would say. I think shame is sometimes inevitable. Shame is a function of, in a sense, being embarrassed in public or being embarrassed in front of others and <clears throat> kind of being humiliated. So whereas shame may be inevitable and in certain cultures, it's huge. It is how behavior is regulated. You do not want to shame your family, and so you will never do X, Y, or Z because you will bring shame to your family. So there is ways in certain cultures where it's used to govern behavior. What I would say is, I don't think shame is ever salutary. It may be inevitable. I don't think it's salutary. What I'm much more interested in is conviction. Meaning if I've done a thing and I am by God's grace or by your feedback, if I come to see that what I've done is wrong and I repent, that's conviction, that's productive turning around. We talk in Lent about repentance. So that is very useful, but shame for the sake of shame, I don't think in general it's what we aspire to. I think we can do better. It may be inevitable, it may happen, but I think we can do better than shame. And I think some have felt the shame of the church in their spiritual lives. 
And I think sometimes it can be used as a weapon, and I don't condone that. I don't support that. So any other, anyone want to offer another perspective on shame or whether you think it can be good? That's an important just reminder. So Tamar felt shame, um, and yet that wasn't because of anything she had done, but because of what was done to her, right? Anyone else want to add color to that question in case somebody online didn't like my answer? Hmm. But they've got no shame. So she makes the point that shame can be a precursor to amendment of life. What is interesting is, and this is maybe, I don't know if I want to end on this note, it is interesting that shame, it is as though folks have no shame. And we see it as a problem. Like it used to be once upon a time, if you did that thing, at least you would feel shame about it. And now there's not even that. And so I think that does leave us in an interesting moral quandary. They continue so they continue behaving that way even. Now she's listing leaders. I'm not going to say that. Um, Anything else before I say a prayer with us and for us? Thank you for letting me join you. It's been really fun to be here. Um, Chris will be back back next week, um, and maybe I'll join you again in the future. Would you mind standing, and we will close with a prayer today. Let us pray. Gracious God, you loved the people of Israel and love the people of Israel and have called them in relationship with you so that they might be a holy nation. In that end, you also loved David so that he might move Israel from a collection of tribes into a united kingdom. And so in that way, he accomplished your purpose. And we also see in David's life, humanity, frailty, sin, and disappointment. And in that life, we're also able to look honestly at the ways that we fall short, that the ways we are broken, and that you do not abandon us. You did not abandon David. You saw to it that your purposes would be fulfilled. And so I do pray for each one in this Bible study today that they may walk out confident in the love of God and also convicted of ways that they and I can turn and go in a new direction that is more life-giving. Bless us now as we go from this place. Bless Chris on his travels and bring us back together safely. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, thank you, friends.